Hey guys, it's Nick. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to give you a little heads up about some of the audio issues that we had in this episode. You're going to notice some kind of annoying noises going on, particularly when Dylan is speaking early in this episode. We're aware of it. We try to get rid of it. There's nothing we could really do about it. It does get significantly better and mostly pretty much goes away by the end of the episode so if you can make it through the first few minutes uh it's it is going to improve quite a bit also my neighbors decided to start doing some construction in the middle of this particular recording session so that's kind of funny it doesn't go on for very long it is kind of annoying but it is over pretty quickly so just wanted to give you guys a heads up on that and uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Today we are talking about part nine. This is a chair. My name is Nick. I am joined, as always, by Dylan. Hi, Dylan. What's going on, dude? Not much. Coffee is flowing once again. It is still the AM here on the West Coast. And I am all caffeinated and I am ready to talk about this episode, which I would describe as being a in the same way that part seven was a pretty unusually plot heavy episode of this season. Yeah, we, we, we actually get a lot of, a lot of sprinklings that don't get resolved until near, if not the very end of the show, we get some, we return to our man, Bill Hastings, um, in a big way, Mm -hmm. but we, we, we definitely get a lot more, um, a lot like at least like one step forward seemingly in every uh, in every little bit of the plot which is i think coming off the heels of part eight and and just how you know we, we've spoken about that uh this is it was, I, I think it was refreshing to be brought back to these these parts of the show that we had spent some time with earlier that we kind of got away from Mm-hmm. it's kind of funny the two episodes of that sandwich part eight Part seven and nine are two of the most like classically mid season of television episodes where a lot of the the chess pieces are just sort of being shifted around and a lot most of the plot threads are being pushed forward ever so slightly um, and then you've just got that decidedly non plot oriented episode smacked right in the middle of them but this episode feels very much to me like. A continuation of part seven in that way definitely i think that we have um we, we definitely have part eight like breaking this up uh to thank because i think if we got two of those episodes back to back it kind of would have been a little bit too much like a normal tv show <laughs> yeah yeah Th- this episode is about as as it, it's what what passes for for normal on Twin Peaks 
which is to say it's still really bizarre, but it has a lot of the conventions of your typical television episode, I think. So let's get into it. Part nine. This is the chair. Right after Agent Cooper left that day, Garland pulled me aside and he said that one day our son Bobby and Hawk and Sheriff Truman, I didn't know it would be this Sheriff Truman, he said that they would come and ask me about Special Agent Dale Cooper. He squeezed my shoulders when he told me this. I tried to ask him what it was about, but he, he, he wouldn't say any more. He just said, when they come to ask you about Agent Cooper, you give them this. And now you're here. We begin this episode with a fantastic shot of Mr. C walking bloodied and filthy down this dirt road. This reminded me of in Kill Bill, where Uma Thurman escapes from being buried and she's walking and you can see like the dust flying off of her. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, this this reminded me of, of that. He's here to meet with Hutch and Chantal, who we we've met Chantal in that really gross motel room scene in part two. But this is our first glimpse of Hutch, played by the great Tim Roth, who has not worked with Lynch before. Interestingly, Lynch mentions in the behind the scenes features that he actually auditioned Jennifer Jason Lee for Laura Dern's role in Blue Velvet back in the day. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah, interesting trivia. Uh it's a, it's a fascinating alternate universe to consider where Jennifer Jason Lee is is David Lynch's Laura Dern figure. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, she she, I, I hope that if you know, whatever he does in the future, I hope that Jennifer Jason Lee is involved in some capacity because Chantel is is one of my favorite characters, even though we don't get a, a ton of her. Oh yeah, she's she's wonderful. I I really like every scene with with her and Hutch. So Mister C shows up. Uh, <laughs> Chantal is pretty appalled to see him in his in his state. Obviously, something has gone horribly wrong. He requests a few things. He he wants he really wants a cell phone. And hilariously he gets this like pink bedazzled sparkly cell phone. Um <laughs> and he texts Diane on it. He sends a text that reads around the dinner table the conversation is lively. Which we're going to see again uh, a little bit later and there are some things to to, to talk about with that. He also calls Duncan Todd, where he inquires what we can figure is probably about the Cooper assassination. Yeah, right. I, I thought so. Because at first I thought it would be about um, 
Ike the Spike or cleaning up that job, but that he, Mr. C, like, doles that out to Chantel and Hutch. So I, it must be Cooper. Or Dougie. Uh, wait, what do you, what do you mean? Um, about Ike the Spike? Uh, I was thinking that they, he, Mr. C wants Ike the Spike dead. So, like, I, he was, uh, uh, my first thought was that he was telling Duncan Todd, uh, you better have Ike the Spike killed by the next time I call. Does does he want Ike the Spike dead? I mean, Ike the Spike is part of his whole plan. Does he? Right. Oh, maybe I'm maybe I'm confused then. Because um, who's the double header that he mentions uh, after when he's telling Chantel and Hutch about about um, the warden, and he says after that I have a double header. For some reason, I had in my head that Ike the Spike was a part of that. Hmm. I don't, I don't know because think... I mean I don't I don't know why he would want to kill Ike the Spike necessarily. I just thought um, it was because of the botched thing or the or the yeah, maybe... try to get to him before he got arrested or something like that. Maybe I don't know. I guess I guess now that I'm really thinking about it, I'm I'm not I'm not certain 100 percent there. Um, but in, in any case, he very threateningly says to Duncan Todd, "It better be done next time I call." And this information is very disturbing to Duncan Todd, as you can imagine, because Mr. C has no qualms about quickly and unceremoniously dispatching with anybody who is no longer useful to him. And yeah, like you mentioned, he instructs Hutchin Chantal to kill Warden Murphy, which we'll see a little bit later. And we also see Chantal briefly make out with Mr. C, which is just so gross. The way they like worm their bodies together is really, really silly and funny and also kind of creepy and off-putting. Yeah. I, I think seeing seeing Mr. C interact with people that he actually genuinely seems to like was really entertaining for me because he's such a, you know, he, he seems to only be interacting with people that he mistrusts or dislikes outright and then this is the first time you actually get to see him with two people who he doesn't seem like he would mind hanging with and it's it's just it's very bizarre and it's like in the middle of the day too so the whole thing has a has a kind of like very awkward uncanny valley vibe yeah we haven't seen too much of mr c in the broad daylight to this point although i don't know if i would describe mr c's relationship with hutch and chantal as one of like it seems to me like Hutch and Chantal are just particularly useful for him. Like it's more like he just he trusts them. Yeah, and right. he's using Chantal also as like a sex object. And so I don't know if like I don't know if he likes them. I don't know if Mr. C is capable of really liking anyone or anything, but he 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 definitely trusts them and he's he sees them as a key component to his his plot whatever you interpret that to be yeah i definitely uh, would agree that he he seems to have trust in them which is which is still something we haven't seen him have or put in a lot of the characters on the show or that he's ones he's working with at least yeah and it's jarring to be reminded of the fact that mr c is somebody who is in addition to being just the stone cold, lifeless, bloodless killer, he also has an id. Perhaps due to the influence of Bob within him, but he has this sexual drive within him as well that is 
very gross to see played out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's like instrumental in his torment of other people, I think, which makes it even grosser. Mm-hmm. So Chantal, she sends him off with a pack of chips. <laughs> she, her, uh, which is like, I, I imagine in Chantal's world, that is like the highest signal of respect that she would part with with some of her her beloved snacks. That's an act of love in my in my world. Here, take my yes. snacks. <laughs> yes, very much so. And so Mr. C drives off in his Mr. C mobile, this giant black truck that. We're going to see him drive around quite a bit throughout the remainder of the season. And that's the last that we're going to see of Mr. C for quite a while here. Mr. C does not come back into the season until part 13. So Really? So we were thought yep. him for four episodes? Yep. Or three, His next scene is the arm wrestling scene at the farm. Oh, hell yeah. I love yep. that scene. Yep, so we're going to go Mr. C-less for a little while here. So, goodbye, Mr. C, for now. It has been real. Yes. Let's check in with the Blue Rose Task Force, who are on an airplane, ostensibly to Philadelphia, but Gordon Cole receives a phone call from Colonel Davis, where Colonel Davis requests that Gordon Cole and the gang make a pit stop in Buckhorn to check out the body of Major Briggs. And here we get another hearing joke wherein, you know, Buck sounds like fuck, essentially. Um, I think that's oh, the joke, right? right? right. Yeah, where yeah. he's like, I don't appreciate your, your language or whatever he says. Yeah. Oh, a place. Buckhorn. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, one thing I found interesting, but that I guess makes sense, is that when Gordon asked Diane, would you be willing to, to stop with us in Buckhorn, she says, oh, it's a Blue Rose case. So she already knows exactly what a Blue Rose case is, which is a little something that I found interesting, because we haven't seen anyone mention it to her, but I guess having the memories of the real Diane, who was at least somewhat of an insider to the FBI. I, I, it makes sense that she would have some knowledge of this, being that she was close with Cooper, who we will learn in a little bit, it was a member of the Blue Rose Task Force. Yeah, I didn't know if that's what she was, or if that's what Gordon Cole was referring to when they first met as uh, something you something you know about, but that's enough said about that. I didn't know if that was like the Blue Rose case or or whatever but it does make sense that she would be um at, at least knowledgeable of it i i assumed she would have been actually being so close to all those different people right yep and we get another really good display of technology here where diane goes to presumably either text mr c or check for texts from mr c and her screen is just, it's just black, and there's a red rectangle that just says blocked on it, which is a display that has never existed on any phone ever. So that's, that's just another example of just really wacky technology. 
I think it's I love it. I've always I always kind of like find it weird in in movies or shows when they have like you know a, a phone with like a obviously made up like OS or something like that. But in this in this show, it's more just like completely not even similar in any way <laughs> to how any phone I've ever seen operates, and it just adds to like the how this show is like. At at its like most normal, it's like it's still like ninety one percent, and then there's this like nine percent of the, even the normal shit that you're like, wait, what? What the hell is that? Yeah, I just love how it's not even trying to be real. It's just yeah. it's the the displays, just like we saw with the last episode on Mister C's phone. They're they're just purely functional. And I think earlier when Mr. C is is trying to hack into the FBI database, it's like a very a hilariously crude and simple display there as well. It's just I really appreciate the way that this show just kind of says, well, we're not going to bother coming up with some realistic looking interface here. We're just, we're just going to we're going to come up with something that gives you the information that you really need to know in a very clear manner and it's it's uh it's dumb but in a way that i appreciate so. it's almost courteous it's just like we're not going to bullshit you we're not going to try to make this look like ios or android here it's she's blocked <laughs> she mm-hmm. can't get in got it yep yeah and you're just like all right blocked noted i get what that means yeah so let's follow the task force as they pay a visit to the morgue. Diane has a hilarious exchange here where she lights up a smoke indoors as she is wont to do. Somebody chastises her for it and then she says, it's a fucking morgue. Yeah, I laughed out loud at that one. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Just the way yeah. she's sitting, too. She's got like her like her like her arms between her legs. She's like, it's yeah. a fucking morgue. <laughs> Yeah, she's uh yeah, she's just got her knees wide open like she is she could not be more relaxed. Yeah, she's hanging. She's trying to smoke a butt mm-hmm. in the morgue. Mhm. Which is uh granted most of the bodies in a morgue are dead, but there are still people alive who work there. Uh Yeah. I mean, I would be <laughs> bummed out if I worked at a morgue and someone was just smoking. I'd be like, "Dude, that's against yeah. the rules." Probably not the most comfortable environment to begin with. Here, Diane receives the aforementioned text from Mr. C around the dinner table. The conversation is lively, only very notably, this text is in all caps, whereas Mr. C's message was lowercase. Right. This is very odd. Yeah, I don't know. I don't... I I couldn't... I don't know. There's not enough for me to, to... to say either way but since there i think in this episode we do get a little bit of the of the doubling happening um who knows i don't know (laughs) uppercase lowercase could be a could be just a difference in like an error like yeah i'm always very reticent to chalk things up to continuity error because like how because how could you not notice that you know yeah and it's not Someone like would Lynch, be like it's in caps. Right. And it's not like Lynch was the only person who saw this, you know, like there's editors and 
you know, people who had to actually design these displays, like, didn't know one at any point recognize that there were two different messages happening here. I don't know. To me, I'm 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 reluctant to say that it was a mistake, and I think it 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 checks out with the notion that we've discussed a little bit before that there is some sort of intermediary at play here between Mr. C and Diane, which might make sense because we know that Mr. C is quite cautious about covering up his tracks and making sure that there are very few breadcrumbs um, to, to him. And so it might make sense for him to set up a situation where Diane, who has direct contact with the FBI, is texting someone or, or something else. I, I think we've mentioned before that Gordon, or I'm sorry, Albert mentions that her messages were being sent through Mexico and like bouncing off of the signal there. So I don't know. Clearly something is weird with these text messages and it's probably not as straightforward as they are just texting each other one-to-one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't, I'm not convinced that Diane knows she's communicating with, with Mr. C no. Just based on how she acted when she when she met him. So right. she who she's interacting with or who she thinks she's interacting with, I'm not sure. Or even if this is maybe like some part of if she's like programmed or whatever as, as a tulpa. Because right. she it seems like I mean, she obviously was expecting the message. I think that's why she would have made the excuse to not go in the morgue. I don't necessarily believe that she didn't she didn't want to see a body that morning so but who she's communicating with could just simply be any anyone working at uh for mr c but like it's to what end is what's confusing to me because she doesn't seem to be um at least i can't remember any examples of her like like adversarially um like working against the blue rose task force except in like the very final confrontation with her I mean, she does have some suspicious behavior where it's clear that she's not she's not being entirely straight with the Blue Rose Task Force. Like, I think we talked I think we, we we've talked a little bit about this before where after the scene with um with Hastings where he where he, he dies um to the hands of the woodsman, she sees the woodsman and makes no mention of it. And then she very sneakily tries to get the coordinates off of Ruth Davenport's arm uh, under the nose of the FBI. So she's clearly, she's duplicitous for sure. But I I suspect that she probably doesn't know exactly to what end she's working and that it might just be all part of her Tulpa programming, if you will. That's what I think too, because she seems to be, I mean, she didn't even... Just, she didn't seek them out. They she, they sought her out once. She told Albert to fuck himself, and then they came back again, and then she went with them. So it seems curious to me like that she would have had this plan in place, um, with especially with another another person or thing. So it, it seems to me more likely that she is just sort of programmed to to do these certain things, and that 
maybe these messages that she's getting even are like triggers for for certain actions or whatever hmm i wonder how long this diane tulpa has existed i do not know um i would imagine it it might have something to do with like when she was like the original diane was raped by mr c because that would be that could like have something to do with nido and like when when nido became nido and got put there i don't really know though Mm. yeah so and that would have been that would have been sometime in the 90s so yeah maybe maybe diane that her maybe the diane tulpa runs on a similar timeline as the dougie tulpa like maybe they're created roughly around the same time the dougie one they think we find out is 1997 right yeah that that's so. that's as far back as as any record of him exists so right. yeah diane just she continues to be just one of the most mysterious and, and uh confounding characters on the show it's it's very very curious her her whole journey and, and her motivations and all that while we're here at the morgue Detective Mackley gives the task force a rundown on everything that has happened with Bill Hastings and Ruth Davenport, Ruth Davenport being murdered, her head being found atop the body of Major Briggs. He also mentions some some things here, including the fact that Hastings' lawyer, George, was arrested for the murder of Phyllis Hastings, which tracks because we saw mr c say that you know right before he kills phyllis he says this is george's gun so right that just that for mr c wraps up that thing and he doesn't have to worry about that anymore because george is is clearly uh the top suspect for obvious reasons we also learned that hastings secretary betty which once again i'm going to point this out every single time is another double name we're going to see Betty Briggs later in this episode. Oh, that's right. I yep. forgot her first name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's only mentioned like once or twice. Yeah. So Hastings' secretary died in a car explosion, which we see being planned very early in the season by Mr. C and Jack, who <laughs> you'll remember gets his cheeks rubbed to death. And that's how he dies. That poor man, uh, yes. Jack. Yes. Very unpleasant way to die, that Jack. Hastings, we learn, has a blog. It's called The Zone, which was a real blog. I believe, oh man, I for, I'm forgetting the name of the actual website. Wasn't it called like Return to the Zone or like Welcome to the Zone or something about the uh, zone? Oh, I think it's The Search for the Zone. Ah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a whole ass website. It was a whole ass website, which is, is very it, cool. Is it still up? We could probably look. I don't know. I think it probably still is, if only because it has links to uh, places to buy the soundtrack for Twin Peaks, which oh, I'm sure for cool. Showtime was the real reason for it to exist. Right. That's how they they okayed it. They're like, yeah, well, 
we need to sell some t-shirts and shit so yeah they're like you're dedicating resources to doing what now like you're hiring a web designer for what <laughs> um but I the think website the... oh it's still up yeah it's still up and it looks like it's straight out of uh 1997 <laughs> yeah it's crazy yeah, it, it totally does doesn't it even have a a website counter like all the old school websites does it does you are visitor number 565,316 wow cool there's bill hastings yeah. last updated yep. november 2015 yep he's got that uh that smiling mugshot there so yeah uh very cool that this website exists and the mortician here, Constance, she shows the Blue Rose Task Force the ring from Major Briggs's stomach, and they just have zero reaction to it, which is funny. I like, know, literally, yeah. they, they don't say anything, they just sort of stare blankly, which I guess makes sense because the ring reads, you know, to Dougie with love, Janie E, and none of those words mean anything to them at this point. Yeah, it was a, it was a great moment where... Um so many people at their tv probably screamed you know and but then you have the these other characters your heroes so to speak who are just completely oblivious to it it was a cool moment yeah because everybody at this point in the season just desperately wanted the blue rose task force to find dougie and right. wake him up out of his trance like fix this fucking guy please we want agent <laughs> cooper yep yep oh boy Good times. I mi- I miss this. I m- I miss everybody's just never ending frustration with Dougie. I yeah, know it was it was it was a good ride. I, I also was. love the interaction between um, Constance and and Albert, which which is just perfect. As soon as the two characters are in the room together, you're like, "Yep, that works." Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So after that. I can't. I included this scene right here in our notes. I can't tell if this scene takes place at the morgue or at the police station, but we get the infamous cigarette scene with Gordon and Diane and Tammy, where they're all sitting outside, and Diane is having a smoke, and Gordon is just just eyeballing that cig. We know that he quit and that he has the memory of tobacco, as he said, and he is just jonesing for Diane's sake. He just goes back and forth between staring at Diane right in the eye and the cigarette, and she's just looking at him right in the eyes as well, just waiting for him to ask. And it goes on for a good little while, like probably a good like minute and a half or so, two minutes, something like that. Yeah, and she's blowing the smoke toward him as he's just sort of has this his, his, his eyes light up too like that as, as it goes you can see he gets gets more and more excited every time he he goes from diane to the to the cigarette diane to the cigarette i i absolutely love this little scene it's so funny and and i love it's really so long it. like it, it it does go on forever but it's it's beautiful yes lynch doing some great face acting here oh yeah he for sure lynch Obviously, being a very heavy heavy smoker in real life, he knows about the uh, the nicotine Jones. I'm sure. Oh yeah, no, you could feel it. 
because <laughs> just that um I don't know, I, I'm friends with so many people. I don't smoke myself, but I'm friends with so many people who um, have transitioned to, over to like vapes, and that's the look that they give anyone smoking a real cigarette while they're sitting there like <laughs> sucking on their vape. They just always like <laughs> do the double, the look at the person, look at the cigarette. Um, it was just a funny, like relatable scene. Yeah, I used to smoke for what three years, something like that, three four years. And I eventually transitioned to not like quitting entirely, but only smoking in like certain situations, basically whenever one of my smoker friends was lighting up. And right. I definitely, I definitely recognized Gordon Cole's not so subtle face. Like, Hey, uh, you going to offer me one of those bad boys or what? <laughs> yeah. Help a brother out, man. Come on. I'm Jonesy. Yeah. Yep. And Tammy is in this scene as well. She's very impatient. This might actually be one of the only times this season where Christabel's ridiculously overstated constant posing actually works for me. Because it's like she's doing a almost like a caricature of somebody who is impatient. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And she just like sort of keeps shifting position in a way that I don't know there's something about the composition of the shot where over to the right you have Diane and Gordon almost perfectly still looking at each other and then over to the left you have Tammy who's this like ever shifting figure there's just something compositionally about it that I really enjoy yeah I thought that this was probably her strongest scene uh, at least so far and in that I thought even her like inflection and her sort of, um, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, just that the way that she cadences in her voice, it, it worked well in an interrogation. And, and she has this really like calm, even even at pretending to be impatient, uh, her voice is very relaxed. And as a counterpoint to the sniveling, like crying Bill Hastings, just uh, it worked for me. I thought that it, and especially since she's supposed to be like this sort of crack shot investigator, I thought that it, her, she like as an interrogator, it worked too because she, she towed the line. She like good cop, bad cop, the guy like herself. <laughs> it was it was great. Hmm. Yeah, the interrogation scene, which we can dive into right now, is probably Christabel's finest moment in this season. It's also surprisingly the first scene that she shot for this show and it's actually her first acting scene ever which i imagine was probably a little bit intimidating considering what's going on in the table across from her (laughs) yeah oh my god i can't even imagine that yeah so So that was her first time acting ever in her life Mm mm-hmm on film at least no Mm -hmm. way Mm mm-hmm it's better than i would have done she does a good job i would have been terrible yeah yeah she does a great job in this scene uh you know i've i've been harsh on tammy but i will give her uh the necessary credit in the scene she does a great job i think it's kind of interesting that it was her first time and that it seemed to be both of our favorite uh depictions of the character because who knows maybe she just she just went with the flow there like the very first time and it, and it worked out and then she might have just been trying to to emulate that or like 
trying to like learn new techniques and they weren't working out for her. But it's mm-hmm. interesting. It's also the most active we really see Tammy because I've complained before about the fact that Tammy doesn't really get to do much. She's sort of a hanger on for a lot of the season. Right. And this is probably her most proactive scene where she's doing some real hardcore, you know, police work essentially. Right. In in grilling Hastings about what it is that he's doing. So I, I wish that we had gotten more scenes like this. Okay, well my neighbors are doing construction, so I'm gonna go shut my windows real quick. <laughs> Oh, it's so annoying. All right. I guess I guess I'm just going to continue then. Yeah. It'll have um, to do until we get the new studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh it's Patreon this shit. Um Let's just dive into this interrogation scene because it is an extremely important scene. We know very little about what has happened with Ruth Hastings and Major Briggs uh, that whole subplot is very minimalistically sketched out I guess you could say and this scene is by far the biggest information dump that we get about that so I want to just comb through this step by step because the things that Hastings says here are extremely important so what we learn is that Ruth Davenport, she uncovered hidden records. Bill says that she was very good at uncovering such such records and that if they went to a certain place at a certain time, they would enter what they call the zone and make contact with a certain person. This person being Major Briggs. Hastings met with Major Briggs in the zone. Briggs said that he was hibernating in the zone. That that was what Hastings says that Briggs said that he was hibernating. That was the word that he used. Right. Which which sort of tracks with the fact that Major Briggs was apparently preserved at least physically throughout his time in this alternate plane of existence right yeah that that word hibernating i think is very significant because obviously what a bear or or something hibernates that's essentially what they're doing is they're essentially slowing their bodily processes down to a crawl exactly with the intention of coming out of that hibernation so and, and it also checks out with what we learn about about um, what they presume to be the major's death the day after he met with Cooper, mm-hmm. and and what we've been what we've been told about this or what I think we eventually learn about the plan between Cooper, Gordon Cole, and uh, Major Briggs. So there was obviously some sort of plan involved, which I think we even see start to play out later with Bobby. Um, but that plan must have involved him preserving himself or um, entering into the zone or whatever this place is for the purposes yeah. of, of waiting for some sort of contact with someone else. Yeah, he's he's hiding. That was the other word that 
that Hastings used to describe Briggs here is that he's he's hiding from from someone or something. Briggs mentions that other people were going to maybe find him in this place and that he had to go to a different place. At which point he requests that Bill and Ruth find coordinates in a secure military database. I think we can probably safely assume that these coordinates are to the quote-unquote White Lodge or the Fireman's House, right? Because Yeah, or some like trip point to get there similar to how similar to what mr c is looking for to get to judy i think something like that (laughs) um because we see we know that ruth and bill did get these coordinates to major briggs and that his head floated away from his body and later in part 17 we do see major briggs in the fireman's theater with the movie screen just sort of floating there yeah you know, right. the big the big horn and everything like that so right I think it's safe true. to say that i think it's safe to say that briggs was going there for some reason also safe to presume that he has some role in this grand scheme involving the firemen and cooper and all that and that that's a whole <laughs> that's 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 a whole can of worms um, and it's very, yeah, I it's think very that's difficult. definitely what this is hinting at. Yeah, it's very difficult to discern exactly what that plan is, but um, I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later in the season, towards the end. Yep, for sure. So, yeah, we know that Ruth wrote these coordinates down on her arm, which we will see later in a couple episodes when they discover Ruth Davenport's body. And so... Okay, let's let's try to deduce what what happened here based on what Hastings recounts, and it's very important to to note the exact words that he uses here. He says that when he and Ruth brought these coordinates back to the major, quote unquote, others came into the zone. That's all he says. Just others, plural came into the zone, pushed Bill down by his neck, and asked him his wife's name. At which point, Briggs floats away from his body and says the the words Cooper twice. And his head just sort of disappears. Now, the big question, I suppose, is who are these others? And... It would seem logical that the person who pushed Bill down and asked his wife's name was probably Mr. C. Yeah, um, that would make sense. And I'd venture a guess that the others could simply be the woodsman. And it could have been, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know, though, because how would Mr. C have been in the zone with, with the woodsman? I don't know, man. I mean, we know that, we know that, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, we know that Mr. C hired Ray to get those coordinates from, from Betty, um, Hastings secretary. So 
he might have had some he might have been on to the goings on of of Bill and Ruth for some time before that. So yeah, that's true, and he seems to be, have the ability to move in and out of uh, spaces. Through, like like mm-hmm. he does in the Dutchman's, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that he would be able to zip in there and then zip back out under certain Correct. conditions. Correct, and I think evidence points to the possibility that the quote-unquote zone is in fact the Dutchman's because of the fact that when we do go to the Dutchman's, we see that the whole place has been overrun with with woodsmen. And if this counter did in fact happen in the zone and the woodsmen were there and Mr. C was there, it all, it all sort of checks out. You know, perhaps Briggs was able to hide there for a certain, for a certain amount of time before the woodsman and, and Mr. C uh, caught on to him being there. I don't know. That actually, That's just a guess. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because that seems to be... Um... Yeah, I never even considered that the that the the Dutchman's may have just sort of been a neutral place that the woodsmen and all of the other like subsequent lodge creature lodge creatures had inhabited, um, mm-hmm. and that perhaps uh, Major Briggs was there before all that happened. Obviously, like we don't have a timeline, and I don't necessarily know that there is a timeline for first that place, like if it even exists on a timeline. But like the first time we see it, it's being sort of inhabited by by woodsmen, and since woodsmen follow th- uh, this whole plot, everything we see them with Bill Hastings in the cell, we see them right. in the morgue with with the major. Right. Um, we can assume that they are keeping tabs on on all of this, and to what end? I'm not sure. To keep people out of the zone or out of the Dutchman's area, I don't really think so. But I, I I definitely feel safe guessing that the others that he's referring to um, that killed Ruth, presumably, are the woodsmen. Yeah, like I feel I feel safe in saying that as well. Based on just the things that we see, it's probably safe to say that. And um, yeah, and, and also just another note is that in a couple episodes when the Blue Rose Task Force goes to visit the zone where Hastings leads them. When the portal opens up, what Gordon Cole sees is the Dutchman's, you know, that staircase with all the woodsmen's on with all the woodsmen right. on it. So um, it would make sense. It's the, it's really the only other space we see besides um, like the red room and then the white lodge, purple ocean area. Right. Right. So yeah, that's I guess that's going to have to be our our best guess for now is that this encounter took place at the Dutchman's aka the zone and that the woodsman showed up with Mr. C and attacked Bill and the major and Ruth and that you know Briggs used that opportunity to escape through the very odd means of detaching from his body. <laughs> So according to Bill, he gets pushed down, he gets asked his wife name his wife's name, and then he just says, quote, and then Ruth was dead. He doesn't say how Ruth died. 
or anything like that. I no. think we can probably safely assume that Mr. C killed Ruth, right? Yeah, or that the way we see woodsmen kill people, it seems like it's it's all it's always under a strobe light and there's always like very <laughs> odd camera angles, so we can assume that it's not something like I don't know. The way he like kind of the way he describes it it seems like it was just that like and then she was just dead so i'm sure she was just they were attacked and swarmed or i guess that's what happened and mm. that and why he survived i don't know but but yeah, i think that yeah he says he just woke up in his room and that right. was the next thing that he remembered yeah we do see ruth has been shot in the head which is consistent with the way that we've seen Mr. C dispatch with with people in this season. Oh, that's right. Daria obviously and and uh Phyllis. So, and we know that the woodsmen from what we've seen kill people in this very specific way where they crush their heads. Right. So, right. it's difficult to imagine a woodsman like pulling out a Glock and shooting <laughs> Ruth in the head, you know? I forgot she got shot, yeah. But yeah. the fact that Mr. C just like brings it like he he clearly has like superpowers he just like packs a gat even in even in the uh, supernatural zone that's how he does away with people he's <laughs> yeah very, you gotta he's stay strapped yeah it's dangerous out there so yeah tammy asks point blank did the major kill ruth and bill is just sort of like no there were so many people there and he's just breaking down and he obviously doesn't know who who killed ruth exactly we gotta we gotta uh pour some sugar on Matthew Lillard here for a second. Hell yeah, dude. Holy crap. <laughs> he really goes for it here. And obviously we know that the cast of the show only received their pages of the script, so this entire monologue was surely just nonsense gibberish to him. But he really, really sells it. And he really convincingly portrays a guy who is at the end of his rope and is just breaking down hysterically. And it's very, very effective. Yeah, it's it's almost like, I mean, everyone I think has been in that situation in their life where you know you're right, but other people are accusing you of being wrong or, 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 or lying or something like that. And you get flustered and you and it's like this feeling like you're being gaslighted that's that must have been how i mean because like you said he he only received the pages of his script so this insane story it seems like he he just does an amazing job of describing it how someone with zero context would probably describe what we're trying to piece together right now like if you if you just took someone um who has who's never even heard of twin peaks ever and just show them the scene with Ray, Mr. C, and the Woodsman from Part Eight. You'd be like, "All right, so describe that in like six sentences or less." Right. It would be like, something. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just like uh the people show it up, and there were so many people, and uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, just to, and then imagine, yeah, or then imagine that you actually experienced that firsthand in real life, and you're trying to explain it to someone who could put you in jail for the rest of your life or an asylum if you sound crazy. He just fucking nailed it. Yep. Matthew Lillard, definitely one of the MVPs of this season. It's, it's, I, I, I was definitely sad when 
his character died because I was really looking forward to spending more time with him. Me too. Yep. And then after some very hysterical sobbing and recounting some incredibly horrific events, the scene takes a bit of a turn, Dylan. It does. Did we mention the Cooper Cooper thing? Or did you? Uh, Yes, I, I briefly mentioned it. Like Briggs, as he's, I guess disappearing or floating away he does say he does say cooper twice gotcha okay gotcha um which uh will become relevant again in a little bit here right um so yeah <laughs> so yeah the scene take ends a turn with, indeed yeah it does take a turn it ends with him saying you know he and ruth they were gonna go to the bahamas they were gonna drink mixed drinks and they were gonna soak up the sun <laughs> oh my god the, the way that, that line. the way that this just turns on a dime into that kind of dark dark comedy is just so advanced. It's so good. Like, I don't think that many filmmakers could really pull that off. But no, I don't think so either. Yeah, just performance wise and the way that it's written, it just comes off so great. It's like Bill Hastings is just like hanging on to sanity you know by the skin of his teeth at this point and it's almost like the reality is setting in that this woman ruth who he was obviously having an affair with is is really dead and he's just going into like unhinged ramblings about the future that could have been for them uh which is dark but also hilarious because of the way that Matthew <laughs> delivers it and just how I just what an abrupt left turn it is yeah it's it's because he uh, it's funny because he gets a sort of he calms down briefly as he's uh you know when he circles the major he's like yes ma'am uh like he, he he gets this like this moment of like I don't know just somewhat calmness and then like you said it just turns on a dime to him as soon it must you know bringing up going over the memories just like makes it more real and you, and he, the way that he just breaks <laughs> and just um i wish i remembered some of the lines because they're like each one of them is hilarious like the all of the we were gonna uh like mm-hmm. we were gonna drink do you have drinks on the beach and watch the sunset <laughs> my favorite like, is we were gonna soak up the sun yeah like, like the oh uh God. like the fucking the cheryl crow song exactly that's exactly what i thought of (laughs) it's just so it's bizarre and i i don't think a lot of um a lot of filmmakers would have the um i don't know would would want to throw that at the end of a a a very important piece of plot um you know it's a supremely confident move on lynch's part yeah like there's there's no impending doom music when you're hearing about the zone there's no uh none of that it's just straight up uh it's just straight up what you get and then it culminates in this really ridiculous funny moment Mm -hmm. yep amazing scene very significant definitely my favorite scene from this episode for sure let's check in with our old friends the detectives fusco at the Las Vegas police station. They're questioning Bushnell Mullins all about his relationship with Dougie, what he knows about Dougie, 
his background, if anyone might want to kill him, etc. Bushnell has mostly kind things to say about Dougie, that he's a hard worker, he's a good guy, etc. He also mentions that Dougie had a car accident at one point, and that he hasn't been quite the same since, which... I suppose we're we're take to we're meant to take as an explanation as to why everybody is so forgiving of Dougie's zombie like behavior. Yeah, right? that's how that's how I took it, or at least like maybe a even like a tongue in cheek, uh, like little thing to throw at the people who I, I imagine they knew people would be frustrated with Dougie. So, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, also a weird little moment here, the way that this scene ends is Bushnell making the point like, oh, it's very odd that his car explodes and then somebody tries to kill him, and he's scanning the faces of the detectives Fusco for any sort of hint as to what's going on, at least that's how I took it, Mm -hmm. and they're all just stone-faced, and one thing I noticed this time around that I never really noticed before is that as Bushnell is walking away, he sort of balls up his fists. Like, yeah, I picked up on that too. Re- recalling his his days as battling Bud. I, <laughs> I didn't know if it was like he... Because I think he's mistrustful of those police officers. And if he was just eyeing them and then just sort of got a bad impulse and, hmm, and just clenched his fist like he, he used to do. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, we learned that Dougie has no records prior to 1997, which helps give us some timeline as to the creation of the Dougie Tulpa. We know that he has to have existed at least since 1997, so about about two decades. Yeah, Um, and I think that 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 would check out too, and um, like like we were talking about how it could match up with the diane tulpa i I don't know i wonder about janie too and um i'll I'll get to that but but she Mm. yeah that the whole janie dougie sunny jim atomic unit i'm curious about Hmm. interesting yeah i i have a very small reason for it but we'll get to it later (laughs) okay this implies that Mr. C has had this plan in motion for staying out of the lodge for a very long time. It's just emphasizing that once again, Mr. C's plans upon plans upon plans. Always impressive. So, the scene ends with uh, a lot of laughing. It's really just an excuse for the one Fusco brother to to laugh, really. Like I love they, it. They <laughs> la- like one of them one of them makes fun of the other one about a tail light. And <laughs> Yeah, to the tune of 260 bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, hey, man, I get it. Yeah. They'll always rip you off. Mm-hmm. And we also learn very quickly here that they have collected the prints off of Ike's gun. Uh, which, if you recall, his entire palm was st- was stuck to the gun. And yes. they they know who Ike the Spike is because they refer to him as our old friend Ike the Spike. So apparently Ike is a dude with a, a bit of a reputation here in Vegas. 
I mean, he's got a he's got a, a name like I uh like referencing his murder weapon. So I'd imagine <laughs> he is he is high profile. <laughs> yes. And then we get another just classic Dougie fake out here with the American flag and the mm-hmm. red shoes. Yes, the red shoes. That that gets me in a mm-hmm. in a small way. Yeah, because I I think so. What well, so he, we we see the American flag and we get God bless America, which okay, sure. Um, don't don't really know how to read that part. But then the woman walks in. Dougie clearly focuses and sees the red shoes and then looks at the outlet, which yep, um, red shoes I think just historically represents transportation going home travel between whatever dreams or what the dorothy thing like the, the, yeah, red, the ruby red another wizard home. of oz thing yeah yep and we know that the uh the outlet it's the means by which dougie wakes himself up into being cooper so um the the other two people we see wearing red shoes are janie e and diane or the diane Tulpa. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, Audrey from the original season, which I believe yes. that this is a callback to. Yes, definitely. Oh, I didn't even think of that. That yeah, that he that it would remind him of Audrey. Mm-hmm. Um I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be some sort of uh like symbolism of like him using the outlet to transport himself a la the, the ruby red slippers. But oh, that yeah, that, me, that too. Yeah. I mean but that made me curious about um about Janie E and her, because now the only people we see associating with red slippers are Tulpas, meaning Dougie noticing them and then uh, Diane wearing them. So I don't know. I don't know. Cause, and then also the connection between Janie E and Diane, if the whole thing is like some sort, and that maybe explains Sonny Jim's peculiarness. Uh, like perhaps the whole thing is just a. Uh, a designed atomic family unit to uh like that mr c has has planned almost like in this weird perversion of of reality yeah certainly not out of the question it makes sense that if mr c were to create this tulpa that he would want to keep around for about 20 years that he would create a structure around that tulpa that would allow him to survive and go relatively unnoticed by the general populace Mm -hmm. and creating this ostensibly wholesome nuclear family here would serve that end certainly so yeah wouldn't be outrageous to suggest that perhaps Janie and Sonny Jim are uh, I mean creations of, of Mr. C yeah or or what there's really no evidence that i can think of that would refute that idea yeah i don't even i mean i'm not even committed to it as as an idea it's just that it it's it jumped out to me and i don't know especially with wardrobe i feel like that's a very uh intention everything is very intentional with what each character is wearing and it's not as if lynch hasn't used red shoes many times over in multiple works um similarly representing like this idea Mm -hmm. is Janie 
is Janie wearing red shoes here, or when does yeah. she wear red shoes? She's she wearing is... red shoes in this scene. Yeah. Okay, I didn't notice that. Yeah, and Dougie looks at the electrical outlet and thinks, "Oh boy, I got to stick a fork in there." <laughs> I'm guessing that's what he's thinking. Uh, that's what we're all thinking sometimes. Yep. So yeah, Ike the Spike. He's in his hotel room. He's obviously wounded, dejected. He has some noticeable wounds on his face. He's in a cast. And he's drinking some, some liquor of some sort. I can't tell if it's that uh, your your most hated bourbon there. It looked like Evan called. Williams. Yeah, I thought too, but I didn't <laughs> go back to check. I was like, I don't even want to know. Yeah, the label is very conspicuously flipped the other way. So we don't we don't get to see the 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 brand on this drink and he leaves a coded message via phone for somebody named jt which i have no idea who the hell that might be no could just be i mean a contact that is in, like meant to be innocuous and unknowable yeah i i have no idea i've i've thought about who jt might possibly be but i don't believe there's anybody that we know by those initials so it's probably some some code name or, or some such thing. But yeah, he, he leaves a message where he says something like, oh, no cigar, taking medical leave, probably alluding to the fact that his he wasn't able to, to kill Cooper. Yeah, that seems exactly what it is, and that he's leaving town. Yep. So he leaves, and he is confronted by the detectives Fusco and a bunch of other police officers <laughs> one of the one of the brothers says we have your palm print and the other says as a matter of fact we have your whole palm and the third smiley fusco just finds this hilarious and we get another excuse for him to to laugh yeah just Try another another confident moment it's like yep you got a little plot development here and then you were just gonna punchline it for, mm-hmm. for no reason yep i, I love how almost every single scene in this show it's never just it's very rarely just a straightforward plot development there's always some strange funny disturbing a little detail in it that sets it apart yeah every everything like has its range i think which is part of what makes watching the show so enjoyable and i can watch the show in any mood and uh and it still works yeah yeah that's that's the thing that i've noticed you know because this is i've I've rewatched it several times at this point and i just feel like every single scene has something to latch on to nothing is strictly perfunctory like there's yeah. lynch is never just phoning it in there's always something interesting happening in every scene yeah and i think when you build your world around uh mystery and, and and even subterfuge like even red herrings it, it forces people to pay close attention to what's on the screen and if you're into that like he gives you so much to to look at and pick apart even if a lot of it ultimately just spirals you down some rabbit hole that leads nowhere and makes you sound insane uh it's still fun <laughs> and it's still worthwhile i think definitely Let's discuss just a couple of really quick scenes here that aren't really connected to anything else. 
The first is a very brief scene of Johnny Horn. We we don't see him. We mostly just hear him running around Sylvia's Sylvia Horn's house and we can hear Sylvia yelling at him and he eventually crashes and that's it. <laughs> I laughed really hard. He runs full fucking speed directly into a wall. <laughs> head first yes um, yes which i suppose is just sort of setting up his uh like even more helpless state later on in the in the richard scene because isn't he kind of he's tied to the chair tied to the chair yeah, that's what i thought and he's got doesn't mm-hmm. he have a does he have a like a cat he's got the like the whole his whole head's wrapped up and everything yeah he's got like a helmet on and, and all that sort of thing yeah. that scene is the next episode which right Woo. Let's buckle up for that one. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's all we get. I mean, who thought that we would see Johnny Horn before Audrey? That's just very perverse and hilarious to me because people at this point were dying to see Audrey. I know, and, and I'm sure think... I'm sure a lot of people when they heard the name Johnny, they were like, "Oh, oh, oh, we're gonna see Audrey." I think that's sort of what it's also there for. Uh you know a little bit of a teaser and because we do know that we do get audrey and we do get her in a very unceremonial uh here's audrey horn way so i feel like you you, our expectations are being played with so that's that and the other minor scene here is a check-in with our old friend uh jerry horn who is having an issue with his foot that's the best way i can describe it what's happening here it's an issue. It's a problem. I mean, if your foot was not indeed your foot, that does seem like a problem. Yeah, it just wasn't. I get the sense that he was trying to walk and his foot was not cooperating. And that the voice that the foot says, I am not your foot in, is just so fucking silly. <laughs> it's so <laughs> weird and like slidey and, and high pitched. Uh, it's something for sure born of jerry horn's mind yes and what really makes this scene for me is (laughs) the standoff nature of it where jerry is he keeps very apprehensively reaching down towards his foot almost like it's a like like it's a badger at his feet that he's trying to like you know get off of him or something like that yeah it's, it's an entity unto itself he's very fearful of his foot and it ends with him uh, just like grabbing his foot and doing this like backwards topple onto his back yeah he tries to yank his own foot and it uh causes him to do a little back somersault type thing <laughs> Which is just, again, just another scene that ends with with an absolutely preposterous punchline. Yeah. It's like, I just, it's so absurd and it has nothing to do with anything, but I can't bring myself to be mad at it. I just can't. No. I mean, it it is entertaining and at the end of the day, it's it's, it's a, a TV show and I want to be entertained. And so I am fully on board with Jerry Horn and his his bad trip or whatever he's going through. Yep. So 
best of luck to Jerry and his foot. That is not his foot. Um, let's check in with Betty Briggs, who we only see in this one episode. Very nice to see her again. I was very heartened to see her on this show. And I love this scene here. Bobby, Truman, and Hawk, they come to ask her a few questions, specifically about Major Briggs' visit with Cooper the day before Major Briggs was thought to have died in a fire. And surprisingly to them, Garland seemed to know that this day would come. And he instructed Betty to hand them a tube, which is, I guess, the only way I can describe it, inside of uh, this chair that has a hidden compartment. And that's where we get the line, this is the chair. Mm -hmm. I really love this this dialogue that Betty has with her son here, where she ensures him that his father had faith in him all along and that he knew that he would get his life together and that he would be a good man. All this stuff, more so than a lot of things in this season, actually has the effect of enriching some of what we see in the original run of Twin Peaks. It's, I, I can't, now that I've seen this, I can't watch the scenes from seasons one and two with Bobby and Major Briggs in the same way. No, especially because, the scene where, where Major Briggs tells Bobby about the dream he had and, and all that. Yeah, which is already one of my absolute favorite scenes in Twin Peaks history, that scene. Likewise, and yeah, it, it's great. And... Yeah, I just find Major Briggs' love for his son to be very touching. And again, the way that this show was able to take characters that are not on screen, either because the actor is no longer with us or they were not available, and do some really resonant things with them is one of the most unique things that The Return does, in my opinion. And and this is this is one of my favorite examples. It does the way that Major Briggs is a character in, in season three without ever actually being present as an actor is uh, it's masterful how how well it's woven into the story and and, and to your point how 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 I think it it even in a nice way memorializes um, the actors especially um, I'm not sure of. Uh, the majors the actor who plays his name but you know it's to, to have Davis. him yeah to, to to have his uh his presence in the show be one of uh you know just 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 good vibes all around he's 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 been working with the good guys he's been guiding his son and i i think it's i don't know it, i think it's one of the more interesting scenes with regard to what happens at the end um because it seems as if they were whatever this plan was or whatever cooper and the major met about uh the day before he disappeared um it all had like premonitions of all the things we're witnessing in this season 
so it's like this very odd um like i think at the this level of the story is where we it gets the most difficult to trace like where and when and and how certain things are happening but major briggs as a as a character in season three and just his portrayal i think is just it's very expertly crafted and and uh really interesting to watch it play out without the actor ever being on the screen besides uh, a disembodied head yep major briggs is all over this episode this is this is probably the most briggs heavy episode of of the season and he's never on screen except for the photo that tammy shows to hastings mm-hmm. so yeah we know that garland visited with cooper uh the day before he disappeared and we can probably assume that garland understood that the cooper that he met with was not the real cooper right i think that's related to his cooper cooper yes uh, statement very much related to the message that he gives to bobby inside this tube right now you'll have to remind me does that that's in is that in season two of twin peaks where they get like the reading from the um i don't know what it is like the satellites or or Mm -hmm. that in and the cooper cooper thing is from then right yes yeah so Mm -hmm. um, yeah it's during it's during major briggs's whole season two arc where we know that he was very preoccupied with getting to the white lodge right so yeah I loved all of this. I thought that this was some of the, the tastiest Twin Peaks shit um, of the whole season. Just, oh, hell yeah. Uh, just from just like the... Um, was this a, a new or a unique uh, Battle of Menti composition? Because I just noticed that the one going during this whole scene is very perfect in, in how it captures this sort of mysterious, ominous, but at the same time kind of warm and comforting temperament. I'm not sure. I didn't look up the the score for this particular episode, but my guess is that it probably is a new Battle Mente composition. It is. It's. Um, I don't know. It just works very well. Let's continue this thread over at the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. But first, while we're at the Sheriff Station, let's talk very briefly about what's going on with Andy and Lucy. <laughs> they are picking out chairs online very odd that lucy knows how to shop online but doesn't understand how cell phones work but i digress yeah what do you think of this scene it's cute uh that's it that's all i think it's just yep okay (laughs) it's a cute little scene that's about it at least it's not like an hour long it just goes back and forth once so yep yeah i've i've been harsh on andy and lucy this season but I actually like the scene. Like you said, it's cute. It's it's touching. I like seeing the fact that they have a real relationship and that Lucy has enough affection for Andy to to let him have his way in this in this particular instance. It's the kind of scene that honestly the first time I saw it, I'm just like why are we watching this? Because it just doesn't have anything to do with anything, but now that I'm not just drinking up every morsel of twin peaks every week with the knowledge that it's going to be another week before i get any more i'm able to appreciate it better for what it is 
yeah it's a, it's a little sliver of twin peaks which uh you know it's not it's not foreign to any of us we all understand the andy lucy relationship we just got a little bit more of it and since i think they are two players in in like what happens in the final episode i think that's why we get probably a little bit more of them than say ed and norma who we haven't even got any ed yet um but yeah i of all of all of their kind of goofy scenes together this one's my favorite uh because it actually i thought it was going to be the other way around i thought that andy was going to be the one to compromise but um mm. I, I know i liked it and i don't know i feel like this se- in a grander scheme this season is sort of like a mixed bag of all of the different shades of twin peaks kind of cast against one another and one of those shades is extreme campy uh like over the top wholesomeness so you know you take that with the the other you know we see some other kind of similarly nonsensical ter- terrifying scenes like when we go to the dutchman's like um it's just or just imagery of, of woodsmen crushing heads it's like okay so you get that and then you get the the, the cute little andy lucy scenes as well and, and that's just twin peaks yep that is this show in a nutshell both of those things comfortably coexisting yeah, yeah it's it's exactly. it's a it's it's a nice nice scene it's brief it's cute and neither of them is behaving like a complete idiot so i'm in favor of it while we're here we get the continuation of the previous scene that we talked about where bobby hawk and truman come in ready to examine this tube that they were given i do love as they walk in lucy (laughs) she's like chowing down on a sandwich and she's like i'm not here i'm on my lunch break even though nobody asked her anything yeah i enjoy that she's she's hilarious like just that. yeah and then and then when they're walking out later she just holds up her hand like don't even don't even <laughs> think about talking to me i'm on my lunch break and she, neither time anybody was was trying to, to talk to her the 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 difference in dynamic between lucy and then uh frank truman is just like it's beautiful it's remarkable yep so <laughs> very amusingly truman kicks deputy chad out of the conference room here chad is just being a disgusting gruff as always he's eating two tv dinners at once which is just a just a fantastic gross guy thing to do i don't know why because like a tv dinner is already sort of like you know not to look down at tv dinners because i've I've eaten my share over the course of my life but it's not exactly a uh, a high class meal and to eat two at the same time just seems like I don't know. There's something excessive. Yeah, there's something uniquely disgusting about that for some reason. And just like to, the, eat, the... to eat two at the same time. Yeah, alone at a giant like conference table. It's just it's just a weird looking scene. Um, and then how long he takes to like stack his shit up. Uh, it's funny. Yeah, and he's reading. Uh, I, I paused it very briefly. He's reading Lock and Load magazine. Which is like a oh. gun magazine. Okay. I did not uh, know that. I'd pick up on that. Yeah, he's just yep. a douche. 
Some douche. Yep. Yeah, which seems like just the classic like douche cop thing for Chad to be reading. Just yes. very good details here all around on Chad. I'm consistently impressed with the effort that went into making Chad as big of a dirtbag as possible throughout the season. Yeah, they know how to make them unlikable big time. <laughs> yes, and Hawk is very reluctant to open the door for him and let him outside. Yeah, Chad kind of has to. Chad kind of has to ask a couple of times, and they all just sort of stare at him while he while he stands there with his magazine and his TV dinners. It's great. I love it. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Uh, for for such a, I mean, we for who's who Chad's working with. It's just like just the little bits of the little moments where you see people cast some shade on him. It's mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, they all clearly think he's a piece of shit, and they arrest him later. So clearly they. They know that not only is he a piece of shit, but he's he's like screwing them and, and working under their noses. Right, and and they seem to be aware of it, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So Bobby has a little bit of fun here watching Truman and Hawk try to open this tube, which it's just funny that he would allow them to come in here in the first place and do that. <laughs> I know, yeah. Like, like why? Like, if you know that you have to go outside and, and open this thing, why would you why would you let this this scene even happen in the first place i don't know it's just it's kind of funny yeah just the smirk he has um i really love dan ashbrook in this whole episode mm-hmm. yep certainly i i really like the the face that he he's making as his mother is is recounting all these all these words from his father it's very effective i, I i've said it before but i really love bobby in this season He's, I do I'm, too. I'm, I'm, I'm a stand for for uh, policeman Bobby. I really? Do. Yeah, it was it was one of the um, it was one of the like I don't know warm and fuzzies when you when you first see him and first realize like he turned his life around and he he's he's a stand up guy, uh, but then to see him have have like a, a a major role to play in the overall plot, I thought, and I was I was happy about it, and we don't get a ton of. I mean, we have a lot of old characters like Blue Rose Task Force, and um, but we have you know not a ton of like the uh, of recurring characters from the original run in uh, in like very instrumental slots like the way Bobby is. So I thought it was cool. Definitely, they go outside, and Bobby opens this tube by throwing it against the ground once, and it emits this hum, which reminded me a little bit of the hum in the great northern and then mm-hmm. he throws it a second time and is able to open it is this tube even remotely something that exists in real life do you know i no i don't i do not think so <laughs> i don't think <laughs> so either it. it's just such an odd conceit i mean i think if you were trying to open something wouldn't you eventually? And you just couldn't. Wouldn't you eventually just try to like smash it open? <laughs> Doesn't seem like a very like fail-safe way to hide a very important message. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. But clearly, Major Briggs, obviously sowing the seeds for this long in advance, taught Bobby how to open this thing. So yes. inside is a very significant message. 
which reads on a small slip of paper, 253 yards east of Jackrabbit's Palace, again with the 253, number yep. of completion being 10, etc., etc. Before leaving Jackrabbit's Palace, put some soil from that area in your pocket. And in the right-hand corner of this message, we see the dates 10-1, and I believe it's 10-2. It's, it's a little bit obscured, yep. but I believe, I believe it does say 10-2, which, so. which we can assume are the dates that this is supposed to take place. Um, we also see... Yeah. Yeah, we also see again the number 253, meaning 2.53 p.m., which is the time that they're supposed to be at Jackrabbit's Palace. Um, right. Or or at least 253 yards east of Jackrabbit's Palace. It says both. It says 253 yards east and then underneath the uh, the little, the two twin peaks, we'll call them, the two little mountains, mm-hmm. It's it says 2.53 the time. And then Correct. 10-1 and 10-2. And I think they mention like the day. It's like, oh, that's tomorrow and the day after, I think they say. Uh, which is funny because that's today. That's September 30th. That's <laughs> like today, uh, yeah. the day we're recording this. Yeah, um, I guess which it is. is. You're right. Which is funny and definitely not at all part of some grand conspiracy. Oh, my uh, God. We're going to get into some like Jim Carrey, the number 23 shit. I'm just gonna yeah. Um, and also, interestingly... Um, on the in the middle of this little note is like the two we have two triangles next to each other and above the one on the left is a a large red circle and then above the one on the right is like a crescent of uh that same red color and then the judy symbol right below it right hmm (laughs) hmm indeed i mean i guess one of them like the red circle could be like a moon and then as the moon is in a different phase it reveals judy and i don't know something like that absolutely no idea <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah we'll, uh, uh, we'll we'll uh i don't know i mean it's it, yeah. it definitely seems interesting and, and important but i mean we're gonna see this judy symbol one more time on hawk's map where I believe we see, I think it's pretty much an exact recreation of what we see on this note here with the two peaks and the Judy symbol above one of them. Yeah. And, you know, Truman asked Hawk about it and Hawk is just like, you don't want to know anything about that. Right. Um, which is a lie. We do want to know about that. God damn it. Yeah. What are you thinking, Hawk? Uh, You're going to deprive us. Yeah. So, yeah, just don't know what to make of it other than Major Briggs, again, being being very cognizant of all this business involving Judy and, you know, he's, he's clearly in cahoots with the firemen and is very concerned about what's happening with Cooper. It's so difficult to pin down exactly what Major Briggs plans and motivations are here other than just he's in the mix you know yeah he's and i don't think we're meant to ever fully understand what it is they were trying to do and that's part of why the finale is so confusing yeah certainly certainly not um 
we do our best, but we can only we can only infer so much based on what we see in the show. So, right. Yeah, and then the other slip of paper is the Cooper Cooper message that we saw from the um, the readouts from from season two. Uh, there right. there was a third Cooper on there, which was cut off. Which I don't know why they cut off the third Cooper. I mean, it would seem perhaps appropriate because there are three Coopers in the season so far. So that is true. Uh, and uh, yeah, but Major Briggs that's... probably doesn't know that. <laughs> right. That's what I was gonna say. Maybe that's that's part of uh why the plan didn't go accordingly we can only uh we can only piece this together so much and the major breaks plot line is definitely one of the more confusing ones from the season if not the most confusing so yeah just one I, other I... just one other detail about this scene that i wanted to point out is the fact that behind bobby we actually see the remnants of the sawmill which in real life is across the street directly across the street from the the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. So, oh, I didn't notice that. Yep. You wouldn't necessarily know it unless you were familiar with the production uh detail that the sawmill from the original run was in fact across the street from the the Sheriff Station, but yep, what's left of it is just there, just very clearly visible uh right behind Bobby. So, oh shit. Yep. Very interesting. Let's head, while we're in Twin Peaks, to the Great Northern, where we get just the tiniest, just the tiniest hit of Laura's theme. I believe I said in a previous episode that we only got it, like, maybe on three occasions, but I guess technically this would be, like, a fourth where we get it. But I it's didn't just, even notice it. Yeah, it's just, it's so, it's just use uh during the establishing shot of the great northern and the waterfall and like very briefly as it transitions into the scene here with ben and beverly who are once again playing their little game of looking for this mysterious hum ben compares the hum to that of a monastery bell and he describes it as otherworldly which as we've talked about checks out if we believe that the hum has something to do with lodge forces you know having to do with mike and uh you know etc yep yeah i um and i've i've actually like been in those like i haven't been in like a, a buddhist monastery but i've been at the temples and stuff where they they do ring those bells and the resonance like afterwards like that's sort of what it's all about they ring the shit out of them and then they just leave them there to resonate and you're supposed to like that's to start meditating and like just sort of sitting there in like perfect silence and stillness those vibrations like really do have this sort of otherworldly quality to them so it it, i thought it was an apt description Mm. do they last for a while too they last a lot longer than you'd think um and one thing that i've i like to do um just because i'm a weirdo uh, is i have this like i have certain ride symbols on my drums one of them that is like a lot uh it like shimmers a lot more than the others so i like to hit it and then like hit it really lightly to the point where if i'm if i'm like sitting up on the drums i can't hear it at all but then the closer you get your ear to it you hear this like it's like this really like 
low frequency warble and as you put your ear right up to it it's like it sounds like some crazy lynchian soundscape so hmm. symbols symbols and and ringing sounds um they yeah they do make this really they last a lot longer than our ears um pick up so i just thought it was a I don't know, it just hard it, it reminded me of that hmm yeah certainly so Ben and Beverly have a little moment here where they they turn towards each other and apparently accidentally touch each other and Ben puts his arm puts his hand rather on Beverly's arm Beverly puts her hand on Ben's chest and they have this moment where they're looking at each other and there's a moment of anticipation where you're wondering like are they going to kiss what's going to happen here and ben just says i can't do this because ben is ben is apparently a changed man as we've discussed he's he's definitely not the same horn dog who in a previous life would would uh, you know jump all over this situation and beverly seems to even though she clearly is very attracted to Ben, she seems to respect that. And she tells him, you're a good man, Ben. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I like this scene. And I think it's a nice way to r- sort of put a cap on, on what we saw in their previous scene together. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, I like this. I, I was a fan of, of Ben Horn in the original run. Just, you know, entertainment value, obviously. But I think he's he the way that he's been sort of turned into a uh, somewhat of a reformed character morally and uh yeah i I like seeing the the examples of growth uh with character with respect to like characters we see in the original run and and just i think there is something cool in and of itself to how you know lynch and frost conceived of these characters 25 years later um you know bobby wouldn't be a total wreck and and uh and Ben Horn wouldn't still be involved in all of these ridiculous, like uh, he was involved in the drug running, I believe. Right. And he was also involved yes. in the, mm-hmm. in the uh, one eye jacks and all that. So to see like just a, a grown character, I think is, is nice. And then we have a scene of uh, a man respecting a woman, which I personally will take knowing what is coming in the next episode. Oh boy. Yeah. Yep. Next next episode is uh it's a, it's a doozy in that regard. We're going to we're going to have a lot to talk about there. Uh For sure. Yeah. So let's close things out at the Roadhouse where Hudson Mohawk is DJing. He's uh a member of the band Tonight, which I don't know if they're still making music, but they had just a a fire EP that came out several years ago now that I just I listened to the shit out of that when it came out um but yeah he's DJing here and it's odd because over the course of this scene Au Revoir Simone somehow uh set up over the course of like two minutes I don't really understand the uh the chronology of the Roadhouse performances here I'm it's not very I'm, odd I'm not unconvinced that uh that there is some sort of like double roadhouse thing going on with this yes yeah, no, sort of I, yeah. 
I, 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 yeah, we're we're definitely on the same page with that. The way it quick cut to Au revoir, Simone, uh, mm-hmm. like very abruptly, I thought it was was notable. Mm-hmm. And it starts their song starts playing during this scene here with Ella and Chloe. And at the start of this scene between them, Hudson Mohawk is playing, and at the end of it, Au revoir, Simone is playing. Mm-hmm. So. Clearly some chronological weirdness happening here. This scene between Ella and Chloe is the first of many scenes at the Roadhouse in the back half of the season that take place between characters that we don't know, have never met, will never meet again, and are having these very oblique conversations about things that are happening in their lives, their troubles, their trials, their tribulations, their their personal dramas. A lot of people, even people who really like the show, will cite these scenes as being a, a source of frustration, like they're like they're a waste of time. But I actually, I I kind of love them. I I find them fascinating, both as like we've discussed before markers of a possible connection to the things that are happening with Audrey and as just a brief little glimpse into the sort of quiet desperation of the lives of the inhabitants of twin of modern day Twin Peaks. Yeah, I think that from some of like uh, Becky and Steven and some of the other characters who we see that are inhabiting modern twin peaks there seems to very much be this uh darkness there that uh you know when when cooper first shows up to twin peaks in the first pilot he refers to it as a place where uh where where a yellow light still means slow down like it was uh supposed to be this like nice little town where obviously there was an underbelly but it seems like 25 years later after all of that stuff has happened it's it's even it's grown it's worse uh and i think we see that with a lot of the these characters that we don't know um so like obviously ella's got this gross rash that she keeps fucking clawing away at mm-hmm. but um another disgusting piece of sound design by the way her scratching yes. her armpit it, that's really where it takes place it takes place at the level of the sound like the grossness um because it's just uh, i don't know it's just so visceral and like it feels like you're inside her armpit as it's being scratched it's awful um but i I, yeah i don't know what exactly is going on with this uh if there's two roadhouses or if the road whole roadhouse itself is a premonition or what or if we're even meant to just read this as like these are just people from twin peaks and this is what would be there too um but I don't. I'm not. I don't hate it. I'll say that much. I, I, I think it gives you like. There's always something to chew on, but you know. There. I think that that's a, that's a whole uh, a whole sort of piece of the plot in and of itself is like just what exactly is going on at the roadhouse and what we're supposed to make of these non sequiturs. I don't think that they're just random bullshit. Um, but I don't also don't think that they're like necessarily like coded. Uh, like hints or, or or anything like that. No, yeah, I, it's complicated. I do believe personally that some things we 
see if the roadhouse are meant to be taken literally and some things are not that that's personally my read on it yeah and where that line exists is very much up for interpretation and i think it's fascinating and it's going to be a recurring theme from here on out this just popped into my head just because we were talking about like i don't know multiple things or whatever um just with regard to timeline uh and I know we've talked about, like, we may or may not be seeing things in the chronological order that they happen. We definitely aren't in this episode because the date that Bill Hastings writes on the picture of Major Briggs is 920. And right. Brig, and then uh, Bobby, Hawk, and Truman seem to be smashing the cylinder thing on the 30th. So just... I think I think he actually writes 929. Oh really? Yeah. That, oh okay. I uh, we can double check, but for some reason I thought it was nine twenty. No, you're right. That was actually something that I that I meant to mention, but I forget. It's <laughs> there's there has been some uh, consternation about what he actually writes here. Some people think he thinks that uh, he writes like nine twenty nine or nine twenty eight or or something like that. But uh, yeah. per, I personally, looking at it, I think he he writes nine twenty nine, which seems a little bit more in line with the timeline that we've established here that would make sense yeah i mean i don't see what this being like nine days before uh the bobby scenes would even matter but Mm -hmm. it was just something i i I forgot i thought about and forgot to mention yeah no certainly not all of the events that we're seeing in these episodes take place on the same day like not even close it becomes more and more apparent as the season goes on yeah so yeah yeah, uh Ella and Chloe, Ella played by the singer Sky Ferreira, who had previously covered Blue Velvet for some compilation. I know that she's a big fan of Lynch, and it was probably a thrill for her uh, just to be in this thing, even in a very limited capacity. They have this conversation here about... Ella being fired from some some burger joint or another for showing up to work high. She's very clearly a junkie. Her teeth would seem to suggest that. She has the 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 teeth of somebody who probably abuses drugs. Yep. And there's all this talk about animals. Like the zebra's out again. Have you seen the penguin? I personally think that these are drug references. That that's just my own interpretation yeah. of it. I mean, I don't know. The only thing in common between those two animals is black and white. So I don't know if that's like sure. cocaine or heroin, like thing. I don't know. Yeah, zebras out again. Maybe they're referencing Sparkle. Yeah, it could be anything. And the way that they sort of snicker and laugh about it, as if they just told a you know, like they were speaking in code and they both got it. Um. I don't think we're I think we're meant to assume that they're talking about something unknowable to us. Yeah, and this this just once again just using drugs to signal the physical and moral decay of the people in this show which we we which we've discussed before. Yeah, and also like the meta theme of of like something in a natural state of existence and something in a perverted state of existence. Um, and what we know even on another meta level about Lynch and his thoughts on the mind and, 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 uh, I guess polluting your mind with drugs versus being 
uh, a transcendental meditator or something like that. <laughs> but he seems to sure. he seems to have uh, drawn some sort of connection, like you said, between like moral decay and uh, and, and hard drug use. Yeah, I guess if you were to pin like what is the the polar opposite of transcendental meditation, it would be using sparkle. <laughs> yeah, like it would that. be like doing lines off a guardrail. Or something <laughs> yes, weird exactly. Like yeah, yeah. So we close out, like we mentioned, with Au Revoir Simone making their second appearance at the Roadhouse. They're playing the song A Violent Yet Flammable World, which is a great I title. Great title, really good song once again. Hilariously, they are wearing the same clothes that they were wearing from the previous episode, which I'm sure was more than anything a production consideration. I'm sure that, as we've discussed, you know, it, all of the scenes were at the road, all the musical performances were shot in the same day, so they probably just didn't have time to go in and make all these costume changes and whatnot. Right. But it also it also has the effect of just adding to this sense of chronological displacement at the roadhouse. Yep, and I think we are you know, we've been we've been shown intentionally that there is something happening with that, I think, with the with the diner scene. So like I was saying before about even even if you like chase down certain things, some certain breadcrumbs in the show and they lead you nowhere um that's all part of the process and i think there are intentional like we talked about the double naming convention there are intentional red herrings all over the place designed to i think keep this mystery uh like i just love that lynch referred to the lara mystery as a golden goose that kept laying golden eggs um Mm. and it i think that that sort of he found he got that goose back you know um and i found a way to to like reverse engineer the what happened with uh with season two and and turned it into what we get with the return and a part of that is having some things that are genuinely unknowable and um letting people sort of try to put those things together and and have it completely fall apart and then other scenarios where we do get some confirmation uh, of things that were sprinkled in so i think it's all part of of what makes it like the experience of watching the show so so much fun. Yep. I wholeheartedly agree. And uh with that, we pretty much covered it for episode 9. This is the chair. We're going to be back next week with as we've mentioned, a pretty rough episode, definitely one that uh was a source of some some controversy as it aired we're gonna have a lot to talk about there uh we hope you'll join us and as always my name is nick you can find me on twitter at strenuous orb dylan his name is still dylan you can find him at piff dylan the podcast twitter handle is 119 podcast uh please write into us we would love to hear from you guys uh 119podcast at gmail.com is the address and if you're enjoying this podcast please be sure to leave us a review on itunes it is very helpful it helps us to get out there to more twin peaks fans so yeah with that 
thanks again for joining us and uh we'll see you next week later peace